0: Well, good morning, gang. How are you? Good. It is good to see everybody here today. Missed you guys last week. Uh, Really appreciate Dave taking us through Daniel chapter 6. But I'm excited to jump back in with you today. So if you do have your Bibles, grab them. Let's go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. All this summer, we have been in a series called Steadfast. We're walking through the book of Daniel. We're finding that in the midst of chaos and crisis and change, there is a God who is sovereign and steadfast in the middle of that. So we've been walking with Daniel and his friends as they have been going through their own chaos and crisis and seeing how the Lord has brought them stability even in the midst of all of that chaos. And we'll see that even more uh, as we jump into a really interesting passage, Daniel chapter 7 today. So hopefully you got a copy of God's Word, maybe you got a device, but we'd love for you to read along with this in Daniel chapter 7 in just a second. While you were turning there, I wonder if anybody has ever said this to you. Has everybody just kind of put your hand on your shoulder uh, and said, hey man, I think you need to take a step back for a bit? Anyone ever said that to you? It's probably in a time of crisis or chaos, or maybe you find yourself just overwhelmed or immersed in a problem or an issue that just seems to take up all of your vision, and you might be anxious in the midst of that. And maybe you had a friend who just put their, their hand on your shoulder and said, Hey, uh, let's just take a step back for just a moment. And that is really good advice. It is. I hope you've got friends who do that for you because it's inevitable that you and I are going to face crisis. It's inevitable that we're going to face uh, pain and things that cause us anxiety. The problem is we can get so immersed in those things and we can worry about them when all we're doing is thinking about them. We get so ingrained in them, you kind of start to lose the forest for the trees, uh, you stop seeing everything until so it's wise when you, you find yourself thinking that, that everything's falling apart just to take a step back, to get a different perspective, to maybe step away from the problem and, and just kind of look at it as a whole rather than getting immersed in all the details. Because when you take a step back, you, you get that fresh perspective. You're reminded of, wait, oh, let me remind myself of what's really most important, I mean, maybe this thing isn't as important as I'm making it out to be. Maybe it's not as bad as I'm making it out to be. Maybe it's not as, as, as chaotic as I'm making it out to be. If I'll just take a step back and see it in light of all reality, all of a sudden it's much easier to manage. And so we find ourselves in the midst of, of overwhelming crisis. It's always important for us to take a step back to gain perspective. And that's a little bit of what God is going to do for Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. If you've been with us this past six weeks, we have been marching chronologically through Daniel's life. Daniel and his friends were abducted from Israel when they were teenagers, and they have lived their entire lives in captivity in Babylon, but the Lord has blessed them And put them in positions of high power. And so they have been serving in the Babylonian government for decades now. And over the past six weeks, we've been walking chronologically through historical stories. And seeing what the Lord has done. And every year we've seen this kind of progression of what has happened. Uh, In chapter 7, we get a break. Uh, Two things are changing now. Uh, Instead of moving forward chronologically, we actually begin to move back. What you see happening in chapter 7 chronologically would occur somewhere between chapters 4 and 5. So instead of just moving ahead like we have been, we actually are going back in time. And the rest of the book are going to be a collection of visions that are sprinkled throughout the time period that we've already covered. And so we're shifting uh, from how we look at it from a time perspective, but we're also shifting from a genre perspective. From chapter 7 forward, we're getting a different kind of book. Up till now, we've been reading an historical narrative. These are court narratives, right? These are stories about what God has done, but these are historical stories that are happening in real time. But once you get to chapter seven and beyond, we are looking at apocalyptic literature, Now, that may sound weird to your ears. It's really not something that you and I read a lot of. The only place you probably have really been truly exposed to apocalyptic literature would be the book of Revelation. Now, how many of you have read parts of Revelation before? Anybody? Yes, yes, yes. Have you been freaked out by Revelation? Anybody? Yes, there you go. Right. Because it's weird, right? Let's just go ahead and say it. Revelation is weird. When you read it, it is nuts. I mean, there's thrones and eyes and beasts and trumpets and seals and chaos and moons falling. I mean, there's crazy things that happen in Revelation. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around it, especially if you're used to letters like the letter to the Ephesians or gospels like the gospel of Mark. Revelation is just a whole different beast, pun intended. All right, so it's just, it's a whole different theme. But we need to understand what we're reading. This would have been much more um, uh, familiar to the early Jewish readers because it's a certain type of literature. When you're reading apocalyptic, these are visions about the present and the future, uh, but they are meant to be dreamlike. They are meant to be fantastical. All right, so there are things that are happening, but when we're reading apocalyptic, we're not just reading it like we would read the letter to the Ephesians. We're looking for broad brushstrokes. We are looking for impressions that are being left upon us. Uh, And so as we jump into the passage, I want you to keep that in mind. We're reading a very different kind of literature than what we've seen before, but the Lord has something very specific to say to us through this. So let's go ahead and jump into Daniel chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. Buckle up. Here we go. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. My spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Let's stop right there. Everybody get all that? Awesome. All right, see you next week. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, this is nuts. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff in there. You got beasts, but the beasts have wings, and there's four heads, and then there's horns, and the horns have eyes, and the eyes have mouths. I mean, it's just, it's these fantastical images. And, and they don't even tell you all the details, right? Because it, it starts with the sea, but then at some point, the beasts come out, and they're stamping things, so there's got to be ground. And then before you know it, now we're up in heaven, and, the, and it shifts. It's just images and flashes, and they come at you just kind of rapid fire. And before you can get your mind around one, you're seeing another other one, it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to get confused by the things that you're seeing here. But I want you to look at what we're told about the, the, the interpretation. Look at verses 17 and 18. We just read it or actually verse 16, he says, I approached there and, he, no, and approached one who stood there and asked him the truth concerning this. So he made known to me the interpretation. Everything you just read, here's the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now question, does that explain everything you just saw? no. But this is what he's giving us. These are the broad brushstrokes. This is what the Lord's going to tell you. There's clearly more going on here, but he's not going to illuminate all of this for us. So when we're looking at apocalyptic literature, we need to understand something that at first is very hard to understand that this is both literal and not literal at the same time. What you are reading here is both literal and not literal at the same time. Now, let's pause for just a second, because some of you just caught your breath, right? You're going, dude, did he just say the Bible's not literal? Dude, he just said the Bible's not literal. I thought the Bible was literal. Then others are going, oh, well, you just confirmed all my fears. I've never thought the Bible was literal. It's just a bunch of stories. There's nothing in there at all. Okay, I didn't say either of those things. The truth here is somewhere in the middle. We're reading apocalyptic literature. So when you jump into this genre There are certain things that are literal, they are true, but they are being told to us in a veiled manner, so you're not going to be able to get finely literal with everything you see here, because that's not what it's meant to convey. There are certain things that mean things, but you are not going to be able to parse all of that out. Instead, we get brushstrokes, we get impressions that are true, but you can't press that too far. That's literal, but not truly Literal. If that's still me, it kind of sounds weird to you. This actually is something that we do quite often. When you and I come to different genres, we understand the rules, and so we look at things differently. You just get it, even though we don't think about it. Here, I'll show you an example. Let's look at a song that we all know, um, America the Beautiful. You all know this song, right? Right. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of gray, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited that's pla- That was hard. All right, so. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's tricky. It goes up high. All right. So uh, here's the thing. Is this true? Well, kind of. Because first off, you say, yes, America is beautiful. I've sung this song. I believe in this song. It is absolutely true. But break it down a little bit, and it might find, you might find that to be a little bit harder to explain. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. Is that true? true? Well, kind of. We have spacious skies in America, but not everywhere. Like if you live here in Birmingham, we've got more mountains. And so you don't see the sky like you see in other places like Montana or Texas or Oklahoma, things, places that they would call big sky country. It's much bigger there, much more spacious there, but not so much here. So kind of maybe true, but I don't know about that. What about amber waves of grain? Okay, grain doesn't come in waves, but I kind of get it. I mean, if you grow a bunch of stuff, the wind moves through it, it kind of looks like that, but it's not really waves. It doesn't work like that. not Unless they mean like water's going to come up and kind to soak all the fields, and then it turned into rice. That's not really grain, So I don't know if that's really the way it goes. And then there's purple mountain majesties. Here's what I really don't understand. Have you ever seen a purple mountain before? Because I haven't. I mean, seriously, I've seen a white mountain if there's snow on it. it Maybe green if there's trees on it. But I've never seen a purple mountain. Maybe if you go to the Smoky Mountains and you like squint at a certain time of day, you might see. Okay, I kind of get a purple. But other than that, I've never seen a purple mountain. And then the fruited plain. I mean, I really don't get this one. Because seriously, fruit typically grows on trees, and so you got apples, oranges, pears, peaches. Those all grow on trees. And so if you got trees and you have a plain, you got a, you got a, like an orchard or Maybe like a forest, but you really don't have a plain listener talking about watermelons or strawberries, but I don't really think he's talking about strawberries. I mean, that's going, I mean, that, what? <laughs> Bro, what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to see if it's true or not. Bro, calm down. My wife tells me all the time calm down. Bro, what are, what are you doing? Just take a step back, okay? It's a song, okay? You just get it, all right? Purple Mountain Majesties, don't press it, but you get it, right? You kind of look out of the vista and you go, yeah, okay, yeah, fruited plane, Okay, yeah, don't break it down. It's just, it's a song. We don't even think about it. We go, yes, that's true, but not finely true down in all of its tiny details. Okay, that's a little bit about what happens in apocalyptic. It is both true, but you do not need to press this to get down to all the fine details. There is literal truth here, but you're not going to be able to fully understand it. You're not going to be able to get it. And quite honestly, that's not the point. The point is not for us to understand all the tiny, fine details. That will become important later on in the universe, but not now. If God wanted you to understand that, he would have explained it all, but he doesn't. He said, instead, I want you to take a step back and see the broad vista. Get the brushstrokes. Get the general impression of what is happening here. I want you to be able to understand it. Now, other people are gonna go, no, 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 Adam. Dude, I figured it out. Okay, look, I've studied it, okay? I've studied Daniel, I've studied Revelation, and I know what is gonna happen. All right, I have looked at these things, and if you look at this, this is exactly what it says here. And if you do this, and it goes there, and I know exactly what's gonna happen. I don't, if you understand, I know exactly when Jesus is gonna come back. Here's what you gotta understand. It's all about Iraq, Adam. It's all about Iraq. Do <laughs> you remember that from the 90s? Remember that? Dear Lord, the number of times I've been told it's the end times because of the Iraq war. Seriously. Boy, it was the turn of the millennium. We were in Iraq. It's Babylon. Ooh! until it wasn't until the second Iraq war this is the real one it's ISIS Adam that's the real thing you see we had 9-11 we had ISIS it's going on in that way the second Iraq war this is the big one this is the real deal it was eternal millennium. It was 11 years afterwards this is the real one until it wasn't I have been told my whole life it's the end times because somebody read Daniel and Revelation do you know how many times people have gotten it right never In the 2,000 years and more, really the 2,600 years that people have been reading Daniel, the number of people who have correctly interpreted what has gone on is exactly zero. So please stop reading these books. Like seriously, anybody's telling us the end times, look at the news, it's the end times. Please stop reading these books. Just stop, because that's not the point. You're not going to get there. Nobody's going to get there. Figuring out all of these things would be like putting a perfect bracket together during the NCAA tournament. You ever done that? How many put a bracket together during the NCAA tournament? You play March Madness? Anybody? Yes. It's fun. Look, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but like, it's fun. Like, you, you get this tournament that happens in March where you get 63 games that are going to be played. And you can just pick them. And so we, we do this as a staff. We're like, who's going to get it right? Right? And you try to guess who's going to win all of these different games. 63 different games. They've been tracking this for over four decades. Do you know how many times somebody has produced a perfect bracket during the NCAA March Madness? The, uh, how many perfect brackets have been written? You want to take a guess? Zero. Never once has anybody produced a perfect bracket. Closest anybody got was a few years ago. They got up to 49 games that's pretty impressive. That's still a far cry from 63. See, the problem is you make one mistake, it busts your bracket. You make one mistake, you bust your bracket. Okay, you get one thing wrong here, it busts your whole interpretation. Why are we trying to do this? That's not the point. The point is to take a step back and to see the big picture to see what is really going on. You're not gonna understand all the things that are happening, but if you will take a step back and let the impressions hit you, if you will see the grand narrative, listen to what he tells you the interpretation is, okay, then we can start to grab comfort from these things. And there is comfort to be had. So let's break down a few of these images that we've seen so far. First off, we see the image of the four beasts. It starts off with the sea. It's called the Great Sea. That's what they call the Mediterranean. So he's looking at the Mediterranean Sea and the four winds are blowing. That means the winds from the four corners of the compass rose, right? So you've got wind coming in all directions and the sea is roiling. I mean, it is just massive, chaotic wind and waves everywhere. The sea for Jews in the Old Testament and really for all ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sea was a place of chaos, they always depicted this as a place of chaos, and typically chaos that was evil, chaos that resisted the work of mankind. So you've got not only the sea, but the sea is in total chaos. It's churning. And then out of this chaos come these four beasts, monsters, if you will. Now, we know we got kids in here. There's no such thing as monsters, kids. So these are fantastic beings. But these monsters come out, and we're trying to get a, get a handle on them, but they're all mismatched, Right? you got this lion, but the lion's got wings, but the wings get plucked off, and then he stands up and he turns into a guy. Kind of sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, but you got that going on. you got a leopard with four heads and wings on his back. The bear's just weird, right? Because he's got like, you know, ribs sticking out of his face. Uh, and then you've got the fourth one. We don't even get a description of that one. He's got horns and, and iron claws and bronze teeth. He's got all these different things here. We don't even have a picture for what that is. And when you and I read that, it just sounds weird, but for Jews reading this originally, it would have sounded grotesque. This is horrifying. Because you see, God had set his ordered creation on purpose. He said, animals in their places, and you don't mix those. You don't take forms and mix them with other forms. They are meant to be what they are. So to take, you know, wings and stick them on the back of a lion like the Egyptians would do, okay, that is, that is grotesque because you're taking what God had intended and you're mutating it. You're degenerating it. You're making it something different, all right? And that is, that is anathema. We do not do that, which P.S., that's why monsters are always scary, aren't they? Even for us, this is why monsters are scary. Why are monsters scary? Because we're taking a form that we recognize and then in a monster, you see it mutated in some weird way. So think about a lizard, right? You seen any lizards this summer? Tiny little lizards running around, probably in your backyard, right? I've seen a bunch this summer. Little lizards, they're fun. They're not scary. They're not. Like a little Nick thing doing their thing, right? They're lizards, right? They're not scary at all until they're 100 feet tall and you get Godzilla, all right? Now it's scary, right? Why? Because it can stomp you. You've taken something that you know and you've mutated it away from what it's supposed to be. It turns into a monster. That's pretty much every monster that we have thought up. Okay, that's what's happening here. Now, we got four beasts. We're told they are four kings. Uh, they could also be four kingdoms. Why? Because this sounds very familiar to what we read in Daniel chapter 2. You remember the, the multi-metaled image? The dream that he had where there was a, a head of gold and shoulders of silver and a trunk of bronze and, and legs of silver and, or, or actually of iron and clay, all right? Those were four kingdoms. This sounds very similar as if they're connected, And people have gone all in on like all the different interpretations of what this means. And I'm not going to get into all of that today because I don't think we can firmly land on any one of them. But let's just take a step back then. Okay, then, then why are we being shown these four beasts? Here's what this is showing us. That all of the empires of the world are corrupt. That all of the governments of the world are corrupt. That all of the power structures of the world are corrupt. They're monstrous. They are a perversion of what God intended. When you try to build an empire or a government on anything other than God Himself, it will inevitably descend down into sin and madness. It will will eventually descend down into oppression and violence. Why? Because it's based on sinful human beings. Now, look, some government systems are better than others, true. But at the end, they will all fail. They're all different kinds of beasts. There's all different kinds of monsters. But guess what? If you try to run your government or your life or your power system on your own, it is ultimately going to turn into a monster. These are either for kings or for kingdoms. So you're talking about what looked like to the naked eye, what looked like to Daniel and his friends, like super successful empires. This is Babylon that conquers everybody, they're winning. They won over Israel. They went over everybody. They look successful. They look powerful. They look like they're in control. But when you take a step back, God says, no, 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 no. This empire is going to fall. And it does before Daniel's even over. The next ones are going to fall. All of these are going to fall. Why? Because all human governments, all human institutions at the end of the day will be corrupt if they're not based on the Lord himself. Thankfully, though, we don't simply get this roiling sea with beasts. We have our mind turned up to heaven, and we see a different figure. We see the Ancient of Days. Uh, now, we talked about this earlier in worship, uh, of this, this interesting term, the Ancient of Days. And it's actually very rare, so rare that this is the only place in Scripture that it shows up. This is the only place where you hear about the Ancient of Days as a name for God, but you see God himself, and we, we know that for a couple of different reasons. He is the Ancient of Days. That, that phrase simply means full of days. It's a picture of eternity, all right? So this is the God who was and is and is to come, the God who is fully and completely eternal. That's in contrast to these beasts who come and go. They think they're gonna last forever, they never do. In contrast, you have the Ancient of Days who sits on his throne, he has the right to judge, he's gonna judge all of these beasts, he's gonna destroy the fourth beast, he has fire emanating from his throne, he is the one who sits in throne, he is sovereign, he is steadfast, this is God himself. And you see that with a couple more images where you see his hair was white as wool. Typically, you would not ever anthropomorphize God. You don't do that at all. Jews typically wouldn't do that. But remember, we're in apocalyptic. This is dream world. These are images. White hair was always a symbol of wisdom. He's got clothes as white as wool. That's a symbol of purity. So again, you're getting these impressions, these broad strokes of who the ancient of days is. But that contrast is important. I've seen these grotesque images coming out of the chaos and then I see the righteous, reigning, steadfast, ancient of days who is always going to be secure no matter the chaos of this world. That's where the comfort comes in. For Daniel who's lived his entire life feeling like his people have been obliterated, that there's no way home, there's no way out, that God has been relegated to third-rate status, he says, no, 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 no. my God is over all of these people and all their pomp and circumstance and all their stuff. My God reigns supreme. And that's still true for you. You see, when you find yourself surrounded by chaos, when you find yourself overwhelmed by anxiety, when you find yourself looking around at the world and it looks like, man, sin is winning. The world is winning. Their power is going to win. The chaos seems overwhelming. You need to take a step back and recognize that the ancient of days still seated on his throne. When you get overwhelmed by the chaos that's inside yourself and you say, Adam, I don't understand myself. I don't understand what I do. I understand these things. It's good to know that there's an ancient of days. When you get overwhelmed by the chaos in your family or in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your culture or in your country, it is easy to look at that and go, it's all going terrible. It's all going to fall apart. You need to take a step back and recognize I serve the ancient of days who is still sovereign and steadfast and that will never change. He's the ancient of days, and he reigns supreme over all this chaos. But then we get another figure, and this one's even more striking. Down in verse 13, we hear about the Son of Man. So you have the Ancient of Days seated on his throne, but then we have a new figure, the Son of Man, is coming into view. Now, that may be a phrase that you're familiar with. It might sound familiar to you, and I'm gonna tell you why here in just a second. But the phrase is interesting for multiple reasons. First off, uh, the phrase Son of Man means a human being. That word man in Hebrew is the word Adam. It's my name. It comes from another Hebrew word, Adamah, which means dirt or earth. All right, so a son of man is a son of the earth. So we're talking about a human being. This phrase means a human being. This is not an angel. This is a son of man. This is a human being. And now we had grotesque forms coming out of the chaos. This is a man made in the image of God, exactly how he is meant to be. We are seeing the right form. God, a man made in God's image. We have a son of man, but it means a human being. If you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll find Ezekiel referred to as a son of man over 90 times. Because he's just a human, that's who he is. But then it gets interesting. Look at verse 13 and notice what it says. It's gonna say, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, that phrase cloud of heaven changes everything because that is the cloud chariot. This is the the clouds that come and there's only one rider who gets to ride the clouds and that's God himself. God is the only one who gets to ride the clouds. There's all kinds of cloud imagery in the Old Testament. Remember, you've got the, the pillar of cloud that leads the, the the people of Israel through the wilderness. Uh, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the, the Ten Commandments, a cloud descends on the, on the, uh, on the mountain. When, when the uh, tabernacle is built and later the temple, a cloud will fill the temple and push everybody out. Clouds are a symbol of God's presence. And so if you're coming with the clouds of heaven, that is someone who is divine. So now we got a problem because we have somebody who is clearly a human but is being spoken of as divine and he's actually gonna receive the kingdom. All of these thousands upon thousands, he's gonna receive dominion and honor and glory from all nations, peoples, and languages for all time. So you have a God-man coming into the presence of the king. Now that's interesting to see here in the Old Testament, but it's even more interesting when Jesus finally comes along And this is why you recognize that phrase. I don't know if Daniel is really in your annual reading plan for the Bible. Uh, I imagine it might not be, but I bet the Gospels are. And if you've read the Gospels, then you have heard this phrase, the Son of Man. It is the title that Jesus takes for himself. Above all other titles, he will call himself the Son of Man more than any other title. In fact, check this out. Let's look at Mark, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Jesus will say this, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He's calling himself the son of man. And what is he also doing? He's claiming things that only God gets to claim like the power to forgive sins, like the power to heal diseases. These are things that only God can do. And he's saying, I am the son of man. I am the one who can do these things. Now, Daniel absolutely would have read Daniel. He knew Daniel. He understood Daniel and what had been spoken about the son of man who comes to the ancient of days. And so he's purposely choosing a title to saying, I am the God man. And if you're saying well, maybe he just, I don't know, maybe he forgot. You know, maybe he didn't read it. Maybe I was just a, he was doing it more like Ezekiel. He was just talking about him being a person. Not so. Let's go to Mark again, chapter 13, verses 24 through 26. When the disciples ask him about the end times, that's our end times, looking out in the future, Listen to what he says. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You put it all together. Jesus is speaking of the end times. It says, when I return... I am the son of man and I come on the clouds of glory just like the son of man spoken of in Daniel. This is the second coming where he brings judgment on the world. He knows exactly who he is. And the early Christians did too. The early Christians understood Jesus to be this son of man because if you go to Revelation, in chapter one, verses five through seven, it says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Amen. From Daniel to the Gospels to Revelation, you see consistent imagery. Jesus is this son of man who comes before the ancient of days who will be given a kingdom that is forever and ever. It is Jesus who receives the kingdom of God, the true kingdom, the kingdom that doesn't come and go like these beasts, that that imposes their will upon the world by by power and pride and arrogance and hatred. No, Jesus Christ comes to bring in a kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that spans the entire world, a kingdom that is not inaugurated by by power and anger and hatred. It is inaugurated by the self-sacrifice of the Son of Man. When Jesus Christ comes in love for us and says, You deserve judgment, I will take it for you. You are sinners, you cannot save yourself. I will let my own blood be shed to save you from your sins so that you can be a part of the kingdom eternal. How can you and I have peace when we don't understand the world we live in? We don't understand all this imagery. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand the culture that we live in. We don't know the future of what is coming. How can you have peace in the midst of all of this chaos? You take a step back and recognize, but I know the son of man. And the son of man gave his life to me and he has been given glory and dominion and honor and power. He is the one who died and rose again and he put his life inside of me which means now I am a citizen primarily not of any nation of this earth. I am a citizen primarily of the kingdom of heaven. Here's my question. Which kingdom do you serve? Where does your peace come from? Where does your identity come from? And do you and I recognize that the only peace that can be had in the midst of a broken world comes in the kingdom of God when you and I put our faith and trust in him and recognize I am truly saved, I am truly surrendered to the one true king. He reigns, he rules, he is sovereign, he is steadfast, and his kingdom lasts forever. That's the picture you see in Daniel. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion as a continual sign of that. You see, when Jesus comes along, he's not asking us simply to believe a couple things. He's not asking us simply to change a little bit of our behavior. He is inviting you, heart and soul, life, completely completely, to surrender all to him, to offer yourself in all of your brokenness and say, I am a sinner and I cannot fix it. I don't have any excuse for what I have done. I admit it and instead receive the broken body of Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed for us, that Jesus offers to us and says, take and eat and drink. This is for you. I will literally save you from your sins, cleanse you from unrighteousness, and I will make you a part of myself. I get to join this eternal throne that will be unending the thousands upon thousands, the 10,000s upon 10,000s. I get to live in God himself, the ancient of days, the son of man. I get to be a part of his kingdom forever. He invites you to that table. So in just a moment, you're gonna be offered these elements. Not simply to do a ritual yet again, but so that you can have a yet another opportunity to be reminded that I am a part of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to ask the deacons to go ahead and come forward, if you will, the ones we're going to be serving today. And We're going to worship here in just a moment as well. And in just a moment, we're going to pass these elements out. Now, if you've not done this with us before, uh, let me give you a little bit of instruction. Um, uh, Kids, I know we got a lot of kids in the room. Uh, And kids, you may not have ever done this before. That's okay. This is an unbelievably special thing that we are about to do. And you might not be ready for this just yet. Uh, this is for people who have become Christians, uh, but you might not be ready. So I really want you to listen to your mom and your dad. They're gonna guide you in the middle of this. And don't worry, there's gonna come a day uh, where it's gonna be more than appropriate for you, but listen to your mom and your dad as we head into this short ceremony. But for anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake of the table. You don't have to be a member of our church. You do need to be a Christian. You do need to know in your heart that you have surrendered yourself fully to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to the one who sacrificed his life to save us on the cross. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome at the table uh, in just a moment. And if you're not a believer just yet yeah, or said, I got questions about that, or I just don't know if I, I can do that, man, out of respect for the Lord, and out of respect for us, if you would just abstain, uh, we would truly appreciate that. But uh, honestly, we would not want you to feel left out. But the most important thing is that you would have the opportunity today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Rituals can't save you, but I know a God who can. We know a Savior who does. And if you want to give your life to him, it does not matter who you are or what you have done, how long you have been gone, what you were ashamed of. Jesus knows it. He has died for it. And he offers you forgiveness and grace and salvation. And the only question is, will you surrender and put your faith and trust in him? And if you're willing to do so today, please partake with us as an act of faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples into an upper room and he broke bread and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. The apostles didn't truly understand what that meant until 24 hours later when Jesus was hanging on a cross, his body being broken for us. This is the extent of God's love for us. So let's take a moment and recognize the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for our salvation. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we don't understand. We don't. We don't understand all these images. We don't know the future. We don't even know the full extent of what it cost for you to save us. But Lord, we we see what we see and already it's overwhelming. That you would love us so much that you would give your life for us. You know exactly what we're like. God, we're broken just like those beasts. God, we've made a mess of things. And yet instead of just condemning us, you came to save us even at the cost of your broken body. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the invitation. Father, we certainly don't deserve it. So in humility and thanksgiving, we give you praise for the gift that you've given. We love you. In your name we pray, Amen.